Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Today on CityCast Chicago, we just passed the 26th anniversary of a tragic event in Chicago history that not all Chicagoans may remember or even know about, but the new podcast, You Didn't See Nothing, is making sure we remember. It's about the vicious hate crime against Lenard Clark, a 13-year-old black boy who in 1997 was just being a kid. We talk with host Johannes Lacour about how this tragedy in the aftermath also changed his life forever. It's Monday, April 17th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is What Chicago's Talking About. Johans, welcome to CityCast Chicago. Man, what's happening, Jacoby? I appreciate it, man. Glad to be here. For our listeners who might not be familiar with this tragic moment, uh, Johans, can you describe what happened to Leonard Clark on March 21st, 1997? Yeah, he lived at Stateway Gardens um, in the projects, you know, that's, that's been torn down for a while now. And um, him and his buddy, Clee Van, were headed to it. Uh, they was out playing, man. It was a really warm, kind of unseasonably warm day, man. You know, when the weather breaks and, and, it's, and it's the nice days and we've been dealing with these Chicago winters, you know, especially as kids, you get out there, man. You just want to kick it. And they went on their bikes. And so while they were out, Lenar's uh, bicycle tire was flat. So he needed some air. Now, the air by the projects where he lived was 25 cents in 97. And the air in Bridgeport, um, which I'm assuming everybody's pretty familiar with, with Bridgeport, really uh, notoriously racist neighborhood just across the expressway from, uh, from where Stateway Gardens and the projects were. Um, it's basically the equivalent of a sundown town in the middle of the city. They ventured over there because the air was free in Bridgeport. They wound up getting attacked by a mob of older white teens, young white men. You know, he was 13. The youngest of them might have been 18. They were in like, like just graduating high school kind of age, headed to college like around there. The newspapers mostly reported it was only three attackers. But it was it was uh, likely six or more, and he got left in a coma. Man, they 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 beat him viciously, stomped him, kicked his head into the ground. But he was in a coma for a while. He wound up having to go through extensive rehabilitation to learn how to talk, walk, even eat again. Johannes, obviously, Chicago being one of the most segregated cities in America. You know, when you just called a neighborhood in the middle of our city a sundown town. What did you know about Bridgeport back in 1997? And was that reputation something that most people in your neighborhood, most of your friends also were aware of? Now, anybody and everybody I knew understood what Bridgeport was, right? It's one of those things that everybody just inherently knew. It feels like you inherently knew it. Uh, because you've been told that since birth. For sure. My people would say, we go to the Sox game and we go home. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, people people are asked, like, when did you first learn about Bridgeport? That's one of those things you just know. 1919 was, you know, the year of... Chicago race riots. Yeah, and it was it went down over there. 
what a brother uh wound up in the white part of the of the, of the lake and um swimming and got stoned to death and just sent up a whole riot and so you know little had changed by 1997 yeah back in 1997 what did your life look like at the time yeah 97 man i was like kind of halfway in college actually kind of finishing up with college um had just having grown like impatient with the process of, uh, of college. Um, and I was selling weed. I was uh, living with my old man in Hyde Park and I uh, kind of one foot in the streets, one foot out. And I was also writing plays. So I started writing my own plays with my, with one of my best friends. Um, we had a theater company. So I, I was kind of finding myself, man, but in between, you know, my entrepreneurial endeavors, which was, you know, uh, the weed game, which was illegal then, and my creative endeavors, which was writing plays and still trying to consider going the, that kind of traditional college route. Do you remember that moment when you first heard Lenar Clark's name and, and sort of started seeing this story pop up? Well, no. So I heard Lenar Clark's name uh, before I saw the story. One, uh, Another one of my best friends, who's an attorney now, uh, but he was just, a, a, you know, another kid from the South Side. He just heard about it. So he told me a little boy uh, had just gotten beaten, left in a coma by, like, young white men close to the our age. And this boy was 13. And he was just, you know, um, couldn't walk or talk. And he, he called me with urgency, like, man, we need to do something, G. So I got to, uh, I got to call in some more of the guys. And we went through Bridgeport. You know, we was on... You know, we 23 on the south side of Chicago, so, you know. You said you learned growing up here that you fight fire with fire. Yeah. And so we rolled through there, but at the same time, obviously, you know, five, six brothers rolling through Bridgeport is a lot different than rolling through Woodlawn, you know what I mean? Because we stick out like sore thumb. Basically, they saw us coming, you know what I mean? So it ain't work. And then um, I immediately got to uh, got to working on actually writing about it for a local newspaper myself. So I, w- I was paying attention mm-hmm. to, to what was popping up in the news. And it, it was it was a thing, man. I, I, I would say it was like the uh, Trayvon Martin. Fortunately, Lenard didn't die. He wasn't murdered. He survived. But, you know, other than that, I always call it like the Trayvon Martin of our time in Chicago, right? It just was without social media. So the world ain't know. You started following this story. You started interviewing people. You was literally a journalist on the street. Did you feel compelled to cover this story? Like you had to when you looked at the way the mainstream media was covering it. Yes. You know what I mean? But I was, I was, uh, I felt compelled to do something, which is my, why my first move was to go over there and do something physically. Right. And then when that didn't work, I'm contemplating, do we try to go back? I mean, I got to figure out something. The idea of writing about it and reporting about it for a newspaper it really wasn't even on my radar. It was my father. When I told him what we tried to do, he was like, look, man, you a writer, write about it. And I'm like, how? You know what I mean? Because I didn't know what I didn't know. But he um, was hit to uh, the South Street Journal, which was a local newspaper that was operated by a guy named Ron Carter out of the project. He was from Robert Taylor Holmes. At that point, it was like, okay, boom, I'm locked in. And then once I started seeing how the, the shift in the narrative was going, from the other outlets, media outlets, then that just drove me first. So how did that shift? I imagine when it first started, you know, there was outrage, people calling for information. How did that start to change in the days and weeks after? Yeah, man, when it first cracked, 
Um, there was protests. Uh, it was everything you would expect. It was everything we generally see in response to stuff like that, right? And it felt like within days, it felt like like just within days, if, if not, you know, less than a week's time, the narrative started to shift to this kind of, can't we all get along? Let's forgive. Let's unify. You know, it's, there's a lot of peace talk, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of racial reconciliation, um, which felt ridiculous. Off to the side is Cleve, Lenar's friend who got away. Cleve Aaron was also with uh, Lenar, and he's here tonight. He's sitting with his mom, just a kid in a baggy t-shirt, looking like he'd much rather be anywhere else. Because he also suffered tremendous trauma. Reverend Martin pulls out a letter that Cleve wrote. Cleve Aaron, would you mind if I read the last part of this paragraph? I pray that God Wake Leonard up. We never finish our bike ride. Never again will I see the world through the eyes of a child. But the wild part is when he calls Frankie's parents to the podium. The Caruso's in here. So I'm going to ask of Mr. and Mrs. Caruso if they would come this time to pray. Sherry and Frank. Fresh off of a TV interview, the whole church bursts into applause, stands an ovation. The Caruso's shake hands with the VIPs and the big wigs on their way to the pulpit. Frank Sr. has on his red sweater vest, looking like a professor or something. The Caruso family would like to offer a prayer for Leonard Clark's speedy recovery. Our Father, who art in heaven. Frankie's mom is at the mic in a black jacket with a leather collar. Her hair looks like a 90s TV newscaster. I just want to say that I came here hurting, but I'm leaving very good. I came here hurting, but I'm leaving here healing, she says. The church applauds like crazy. In closing, I ask the Lord to enlighten us to bear in mind that children of all ages, color, and creed have one thing in common. They close their ears to advice and open their eyes to example. Thank you. Praise God. And how do we have, you know, um, all of this rage and anger turn into this kind of Jesus turn the other chick moment? And uh, and that just made me that just made me investigate more. And I mean, you're hearing this from all directions. You got the president at the time, Bill Clinton, coming out and saying you can't look at all white people with, and paint one broad brush. But then you also got folks like Jesse Jackson. Right. Who's coming out, who has seen racial violence up close and personal uh, throughout his time as an activist, as a community leader, as an organizer. What did it feel like to not only hear this from maybe your white anchors, your white president, but also your black community leaders, your church leaders, some of your neighbors? Oh, man, I was it, I was I was incensed, man. It, it, uh, it was 
outrageous, man. I was enraged. I and I was younger too, so it's easier to just be mad and angry and emotional about things when you know a certain level of wisdom you ain't got yet. It was more than disappointing. You know what, what made it so easy for the white anchors and Bill Clinton and the likes to push that type of narrative is when they got the support of black folks on the ground pushing that narrative, right? It reminds me of Jesse Jackson and the war on drugs, right? Um, once Jesse Jackson comes through with the up with hope, down with dope, and, and kind of vilifies, you know, all of the community members who are involved in the drug game at that time, then it makes it really easy for his, you know, his uh, congressional uh colleagues to to push these outrageous crime bills when you start looking into this more closely when you start investigating it what are some of the things you find that other reporters aren't mentioning aren't talking about aren't broadcasting the biggest thing i found was that all of, so all of the other reporters reports were that it was three attackers the biggest thing i found was when i was talking to the kid who got away lenard's buddy who got away and he counted at least six attackers, right? So that's, first of all, that's twice as many. And second of all, that's all he counted in the midst of being attacked. It was very likely a much larger mob. It's very likely um, uh, men who just got away scot-free without even being charged. And, and that was never reported. Even after I reported that, it wasn't piggybacked, followed up on, addressed or nothing. I discovered that, you know, Lennar and his buddy had stopped to play a, a game of pickup football with some Mexican kids before they were attacked. So there was wit there was at least a wit one witness, right? Um, turns out from my interview with Lennar's buddy that one of these Mexican kids was with them when they were attacked. That didn't come out till much later. And as you started to look into this obviously we could talk about the white privilege that was afforded uh to these teenagers who executed this this heinous attack but as you dig deeper it isn't just their privilege in and of themselves you're, you're uncovering family's history things that that was sort of public knowledge to people can you talk about how that played into it as well the sort of family ties and the history uh of some of these kids well we're talking chicago right and um you know, the big gangsters, big mobs, big politics. Yeah, right. Organized crime, the home of it. And so the lead attacker was the son of, uh, he came from a powerful mob family, man. His family had mob ties literally tracing back to Al Capone, right? Legendary Chicago mobster stuff. And so that in and of itself, you know, just lends a, a different kind of power. Right. So here you got folks from Bridgeport, like you say, Daily Stronghold. So the political power is there. And then and now you got, you know, the type of money and power that comes from being connected to the to the to the mob. And so they were able to lean on folks, I imagine, um, and use their money and resources to sway things their way, intimidate folks. And lastly, or at least third, uh, Bridgeport is also home to a lot of Chicago police officers, right? And so, so they, they got, you know, they even had power. Another thing that Pat Hill told me, she was president of the African-American Police League at the time. And um, she wasn't like, she wasn't your average cop. She was able to talk to officers she knew personally who worked the station where the, the Bridgeport 
guys were, were charged, were arrested and brought into. And so she said that the family of the lead attacker, the Caruso's, and and their lawyers came in and basically take took over the station, just had free reign over the place like they'd never seen. You you don't see that, right? It, it kind of you know these are officers telling her like they came over here and it was like the station was theirs, you know. So you know that power it went that high, it went that far. The way the media, public figures, activists move so quickly to to talk about racial healing and bringing the community together. Why is that so problematic, especially considering just the sheer power imbalance in this story? One, he was a a, a little kid against, you know, young men. But also when you take in all of this context of neighborhood, family connections, you know, why is it even more problematic that the media moves so quickly to try to, you know, kind of kumbaya this moment? Uh, what one one it shows just how uh how vulnerable the media is to these powers that be, right? It's one thing for the Lenar Clarks and even the Jesse Jacksons, right? Like Jesse Jackson's far from, you know, was far from poor or far from as vulnerable as the Lenar Clark, but he's still, you know, a, a black victim of of white supremacy in in this in this country, we are just an extremely vulnerable population. So it's one thing for this vulnerable population to be preyed upon and manipulated and swayed into, you know, going the wrong route and selling each other out for some, for some scraps of silver, right? But it's another thing when big media, when major media outlets who are supposed to be the truth tellers um, and supposed to be, you know, and bringing light to situations get just as easily swayed or just turn a blind eye. When you can't trust the media, when you can't trust mainstream media, when you can't trust these these folks to look out for your interests and and speak to, you know, what's going on with, with your community the same way they speak to the rest of the city and the population, then you, you left out here just to defend for yourself. Yeah, and and it it really highlights why you have this mentality, why we have this mentality that like, no one's going to take care of us. We got to get our, our homies together, get some pipes, get our tools, hop in the car and pull up on, uh, pull up on Bridgeport. There's no shock that that is your desired first reaction with so much violence and vitriol sort of thrown in your way. It sucks to always be told you have to be the diplomatic one. Right. You have to be the one who keeps your emotions in check. You have, you're the one who has to sort of go through the system and do diligence, call the proper channels when it's like, but none of those channels seem to serve me. The media doesn't seem to be reporting this properly. The police don't seem invested in this. My community leaders seem to be swayed. It, it compounds this, this feeling of frustration that we have. And it's the reason that every time you move from one name to the next, that that, that, that just continues to build because this isn't in a vacuum. This is hundreds of years uh, of assault on our on our personhood, just sort of, you know, piled on top of each other. Yeah, it's, it's uh, man, it's, it's gaslighting at its finest, right? How different are you from from the status a slave had? You know, what I mean, what difference is the status you share? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's it's super problematic in a society where we have, you know, we are at the same time being told. That we're making progress and we're saying we're at the same time being told that we're on our way to this post-racial society right that you know it's like why are you still talking about slavery that was so long ago 
No, in fact, th this thing is still running in, in such a similar fashion that it's disrespectful to tell us to get over it. This was such a huge part of your life in 1997. What compelled you to revisit it now in 2023? I was frustrated with uh, news, with writing, um, it's, it's, it's at least for newspapers or media, by that whole experience. But, I, you know, all these years later, uh, I find an organization that has the type of reach, right? The paper I was writing for then, it was out of the project, had a very small readership. It was basically preaching to the choir. You know what I mean? It, it couldn't get out, right? We couldn't put it in people's faces. So the Tribune and the Sun-Times and the major outlets could easily just ignore it. What is it if, if a tree falls in the wood in, in, in the woods and, and nobody um, is there to hear it? Did it make any noise? So, if you know, if I, if I report on something and can't nobody hear it or read it, that was just self-satisfying. That was just the exercise in writing and nonfiction writing for myself. But working with an organization that had an audience and had the means to push this thing, you know, nationally and even globally. So it's like, I, you know, 25 years, 26 years later. I was able to deliver the story that, you know, I just had to walk around with bottled up. But you've now essentially been reporting this story for over 25 years. How have you changed in that time span? And why did you decide to to name the podcast? You didn't see nothing. Yeah. So I, I've changed a lot, man. And that 25 years, I, I, I grew up in a lot of ways. Also, um, I also did 10 years uh, in prison, in federal prison for, for, uh, for drug charges. And, uh, and that kind of took me away from society for a decade. So I did a lot of reflecting. And so, um, so I, think I'm a, I think I'm a wiser man. Um, I think I'm a lot less emotional. Um, it's not about, you know, when I was reporting this story in 97, I had a, a personal beef with everybody involved and it was personal it was about the individuals i was angry at these names um all these years later i realized that those names are interchangeable uh if it wasn't jesse jackson it would have been somebody else if it wasn't this you know bridgeport family it would have been another one if it wasn't lenard clark it would have been another kid and it's about the dynamics um and and the general behavior uh, and the general conditions and relationships uh, between black folks and, and the rest of society and even, you know, internal relationships between black folks. I found a little peace with it, man. I had to realize, man, that um, black folks uh, ain't going to win here. We can't. Our numbers are too low and our support is, is too little and our opposition is too strong. But I liken it to uh, to Jordan when, when the Bulls were just, you know, trash, right? He knew he couldn't win. You knew the Bulls was going to lose, but and you knew they weren't making no championship. But that man went out there as if he could win every game by himself. Where he never, he never, you never saw him not run down the, the floor to pick up defense because everybody else wasn't doing it. He fought hard. It felt like he fought as hard as he could, knowing he was going to lose. And that's the spirit with which uh, we got to fight for liberation here, even against all odds. <laughs> you 
Johannes LaCour is the host of the podcast, You Didn't See Nothing. It's produced by USG Audio and the Invisible Institute. You can binge all seven episodes now, wherever you get your podcast. Johannes, thank you for stopping by CityCast Chicago to share your story and this story. And I appreciate you, Nicole. Before I let you go a little bit of news, y'all, we got a few public forums on the calendar for you this week. Tonight, you can attend an online meeting about the forthcoming elected school board. I'm going to drop a link for you in the show notes. Also, public forums about the next police superintendent hiring process continue this week, Wednesday, at St. Sabina Church in Auburn Gresham. If you can make it, next week's will be online. I also got a registration link for you. Last week, Chicago broke a 136-year-old weather record as we jumped into the 80s this week. Yeah, we ain't likely to crack the high 60s, but come on, that's still good enough for some extended outside time. So let us know how you're spending your sunny days with a text or a voicemail at 773-780-0246. And some good news to get you through. In celebration of Earth Day, check out the mini Earth Day Film Fest all week long. They will have five films available in person or online. You can participate in One Earth Collective Park cleanup this week at Columbus Park. All info and showtimes available wells in the show notes, my friends. As always, I appreciate you for listening. Make sure you're reading along with our daily newsletter, Hey Chicago, at chicago.citycast.fm. But hey, I know you. You already getting it in your inbox at 6 a.m. Monday through Friday. So make sure you open it and you're getting the latest in news and events around this beautiful city. I'm going to talk to you early tomorrow. Peace. Most of my guys, most of my homies, um, they, they didn't know nothing. They didn't know what an audio podcast was. When they think of podcasts, they think of Breakfast Club and Drink Champs and these YouTube podcasts and, yeah, visual. Um, and so, and but once they've heard this, like, they hooked.